Welcome to another TechBound episode where I have deep conversations with growth experts. My guest today is serial entrepreneur and first principles thinker, Pep Laya. Pep is the founder and CEO of Winter with a Y, Conversion XL, and chairman of Spiro, which used to be Conversion XL Agency. The topics we cover include gaining a competitive advantage, building an audience, and overcoming sameness. If you like this episode, consider rating it five stars or giving it a thumbs up. Either way, enjoy this conversation with Pep Laya. Three, two, one. Before we get to the conversation with Pep Laya, I want to give a quick shout out to the sponsor of this episode, Ahrefs. Ahrefs provides you with a complete SEO tool set from rank tracking to keyword research, backlink analysis, and technical audits. If you're curious, you can start a seven-day trial for just a dollar a day. And if you want to learn more, check out my Twitter thread about my three favorite Ahrefs tips. And now, back to the conversation with Pep Laya. Pep Laya, welcome to the show. Thanks for being on. My pleasure, man. Pep, why is it so important to build an audience before building a product? It's because if you don't have money to buy an audience, which might be the case, but it's not the case for most, you have nobody else, nobody to uh, sell your product to. Um, I know firsthand because I had a SaaS company. Uh, uh, it's a failed SaaS company now, 10 years ago or so. Uh, and I built a product that I thought was pretty good. It's similar to what Teachable is now. And it failed because I had no audience to sell to, no money to buy the audience. And uh, so the growth was too slow that I ran out of steam before getting anywhere. And how would you say, or what would you say is the best way to build an audience? I'm sure there's a lot of nuance. So what is your opinion about building an audience? Well, it really depends what type of business you're in. So if you're in consulting, you're an agency, it's easy. So then you're in the business of expertise and you need to show it. And then content marketing is obviously perfect for this. You know, you just teach people what to do and what to say. And, uh, you know, you blog, you, you do podcasts, you do YouTube, whatever it is. I built my audience when I got started with CXL through blogging. You know, back then, obviously, social wasn't as big of a thing. I mean, it was there, but it wasn't, I think, as prevalent. YouTube was not really used for B2B content marketing back in the day. Uh, so I, I doubled down on blogging. Um, I think now you're going to do all the channels, like repurpose the content. So, so yes, but if, you, if you're a SaaS company, still you're solving a certain type of problems. So it really depends now also, like, are you a me too company? Like I also do uh, accounting and sending invoices, in which case, if you try to do content on like how to best send invoices, that's not going to go anywhere. Nobody will care. I think for a SaaS company, uh, you need some sort of a strategic narrative, like a bigger narrative to tap into and just talk about that. But the channels are still, you know, your, your social, your blogs, your, your videos, your TikToks. Uh, consistency, I think volume of content and, and the quality of content are like the, the main things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that narrative point is a really important one. And I also think that it's easy to just come up with some story, but it's really hard to come up with a narrative that actually fits your mission, fits your product, fits your target audience, is authentic to yourself too. Um, you've, you're a multiple, you're, you're a seasoned entrepreneur. How have you tackled that in the past? How have you come up with that narrative? 
I've uh, I've become more savvy about this stuff uh, in the last few years. So uh, I didn't know anything about that ten years ago, and I was also I think playing a lot of the the brand preference game that actually is not really um, effective. So brand preference game is like uh, choose me because I am uh, you know better, faster, or cheaper. You know, so like minor differences between you and everybody else in the category. So I had the lucky start in with CXL that when I started, which was like conversion optimization consulting agency, that this was not a mature category. All the pieces were up in the air and the places, the spots in the category were up for grabs. And while I was not the category creator, it had been forming over the years. I was certainly not the first agency to enter the space, but I... I saw this forming and uh, I just hopped onto the conversion optimization train and I played a huge role in building and shaping the category, like the concept of category creation and how to do that consciously. I was just uh, did not know about that stuff. Uh, so it, it was kind of a fluke. I did not, not have a big, big narrative. My narrative was like, what is CRO and you should do it. We can see this today with some other say newer movements like product-led growth uh people who are pushing uh product-led growth let's say westbush and productlet.com he's just talking about why you need to be product-led today right and then there's a community-led movement and uh, customer-led growth and all kinds of stuff is happening so when when it's something new it's easy to tack onto that on the other hand it's it's an already mature category Things are hard. And I felt it firsthand with, with when I started CXL Institute, an e-learning company, now it's just called CXL, in 2016. It's like, we can do courses. We can do courses on conversion optimization, digital analytics, and so on and so forth. And we, we figured out a specialization for us, which served us, and we're still growing, uh, you know, 40%, 45% year over year, which is pretty decent. But we're, we're still small potatoes. And uh, if you look at the e-learning category as a whole, like who, who are the big players? Who are like, and then the big players are like Udemy and LinkedIn Learning and Udacity and Coursera, just went public. What kind of share of market those guys have versus CXL? And the, the difference is like, you know, a million times. It's huge. It's a huge difference. And because we did not have a strong narrative. Uh, in fact, the whole differentiation of how CXL is different from these other e-learning providers, especially now that it's, uh, it's a super fragmented and saturated category, anybody can build their own e-learning things, you know, so it's the easiest business to start. I have learned uh, how if you don't have a strong narrative, it's, it's much harder to compete because the market positions, like who's the number one and two in the category, those those positions are, uh, they don't really move. You know, it's very hard to make momentum because the, the, the market and customer momentums are just too big. And, and the offering was too, it hurts to me to say that, but like mundane, kind of like, oh, we're better. So like, what are we actually competing on? And that led me to realization that the way we've been building this business, okay, it has served us to this point. But in order to really carve out a bigger pie, we need to dramatically change things up. And that's all cooking. But with winter, 
uh, I am doing this consciously. I uh, have been doing this consciously from day one, tapping into a bigger, bigger narrative. And there's probably something to be said also about specialization versus generalization, right? Like a Coursera uh, or Udemy, they, at least from the outside, feel very much like they try to commoditize courses, right? They make, try to make it scalable. So I think there, there are also different, what I'm trying to get to is there are probably different economic frameworks to carve out your specific niche. And then there's still, it, I still find it then challenging to create the narrative. So how did you think about that when doing it for winter? You know, like you, you have all this experience, you tried it or you um, were, were able to gain experience from a couple of different companies. Now you come with your sharpened tool set to winter. So what was your, what, what were kind of the first kind of steps that you went through to define the narrative? You have to tap into something that people already believe. Um, I mean, unless you have a dramatically innovative product that just changes the game, that's different. So ah, not doing flying cars over here, you know? Um, so with Winter, I was like, what is something that is actually happening in the big wide world? And what is it that we are doing that fits into something that is actually happening that I can demonstrate uh, factually? I have a lot of evidence. And something that people will believe and resonate with. Because you can't have a story that is completely bogus and bullshit and made up. It cannot be mundane and everyday stuff. And so this story that I attached myself on and started telling, and I'm still telling it daily, is the story of how it doesn't, uh, the old way of competing doesn't serve you anymore. So what, is, what has changed is in the last 10 years alone, there, like, there have never been as many brands as there are today, which is a fact. Even like in MarTech alone, there are 53 times more companies than there were in 2010. 5,300 plus percent growth. And if you'll zoom into any category, like survey tools or A-B testing tools or whatever, well, say SEO tools, it's, it's insane how many tools or companies are competing. In, in that category, email marketing has, I think, 250 plus tools. It's the same for direct-to-consumer e-commerce because uh, it used to be that the factory was your moat, but now anybody with Alibaba, you know, they don't need to make their own stuff at all. So there's a huge amount of competition, obviously, agencies as well because it's the, the easiest business in the world to start this up a website. I'm an agency, right? That's it. That's all you need. And so that is happening. And there's a huge amount of noise. And what is also happening is that there's a whole, so there's a lot of sameness going around, which is also a fact. If you look at any of these categories, like survey tools, you know, there's there's SurveyMonkey and there's uh, you know, Qualtrics and Google Forms, and those are the category leaders. And the type form is up there somewhere. And then there's 50 other survey tools. And what do these tools say about themselves? They say, build surveys fast and easy. And they all say that. And how would you ever find out about them if they're saying the same things? And if you look at them, they also they, they, you can do uh, ask open-ended questions and multiple choice questions. There's very little innovation. When Typeform entered the market, they they had true innovation where like, you know, what the Typeform looks and feels like versus a traditional survey market survey, right? Now, of course, there's a 25 clones that do the Typeform style survey. 
And so, so there's sameness, there's never been more competition, and you cannot really outcompete the competition with innovation. Very few can play the innovation game and win because it requires a lot of money, like true, I mean, uh, trans transformational innovation. Very few can do that. So what's left for you is to compete on messaging, story, positioning. And in order to win at that game, in order to compete and win at that game, you need to know what your people, what the people that you're selling to want, how they want it, what are the problems they have, desired canes, pains they want to avoid. And two, you need to know how the stories you're telling, how the messaging you're using, how is it resonating with the people you're trying to influence? And these are the capabilities that Winter is offering. And so now I'm telling the story, what is happening in the world? Why you cannot compete the old way, which was, you know, we'll build another feature and then we're, we've made it, you know? Or we do more better marketing. Really hard to win at that one. And so, so I'm, I'm, I'm saying what's happening in the world. What is the new strategy to win? Which is you win on your story, your messaging, your positioning. And then I'm positioning my capabilities, the features, that what, what, what Winter does as uh, the magic sauce, if you will. It's very powerful. And I can personally attest to the crowding of software categories. Uh, when I worked at G2, we saw that firsthand in many categories. And there are new categories every day, right? Yeah. Um, and that's where, so, that's where the opportunities lie for most companies. It's like in a new category, pieces up in the air. And if you look at fast growth periods for, for companies, it's usually when there's, like, there's a new category forming, emerging or subcategory. That's when pieces up in the air and whoever out executes others is faster and you know, creates more momentum. Grab a market position because, as I said earlier, once it's a mature form category, the positions are very rigid. You know, if you're number 17, odds are you're going to be 17 for a long ass time. Yeah, yeah, it's very rare for a 17 to to make it to the top three uh, in a year, or maybe even five years, right? Most companies drop out of the race. Totally. Uh, I think the most trusted way to get there is uh, if you have excess share of voice, which means that typically what correlates is that your share of market, so let's say you have 2% market share, then you typically also spend 2% of the ad spend in that category. So in order to go from spot 17 to spot five, you need to have a lot of excess share of voice, meaning that you outspend people, you know, your size. And so you create more awareness, you get more uh, penetration. That's a way to do Monday.com is a, is a prime example of entering a very crowded category of, you know, Airtable and Trello and Basecamp and Asana and all those guys and just buying your way into it. I think like uh, they raised some like 150 mil in 2019 or something. And seemed to me, I don't know the numbers, obviously, but seemed to me that most of the money went into YouTube ads. And it really worked for them, obviously. Uh, they really outspent their competition. Uh, and I don't know where they are at in terms of like, are they number one or two or three or four? But they definitely uh, accelerated the business. Uh, the numbers speak for themselves. If you Google their revenue numbers, it's really fast growth. Yes. We saw them coming when I was at Atlassian. We saw them spending all this money. We saw their, we really dove deep, looked at their features, all that kind of stuff. And we decided not to 
try to fend them off, not to give them too much attention. Um, but yeah, over the years, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. They kind of, they, they force their way into the market with spend. And then, I mean, at this point, it becomes a money leverage game, right? It's not even, they didn't do anything crazy, right? YouTube ads, anybody could run those. Um, but they just, they just fired uh, and fired and fired. The, the challenge is, right? I, I would, I would say that if you don't have, at least a certain degree of product market fit is just gonna it's just gonna waste and burn money along the way. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. There has like you to can't be... be total sameness. Uh, yeah, like in order to you know, so I think there's a there's a message market fit that you need. It's meaning that the things you say about yourselves they need to resonate with the people that they're. Oh yeah, maybe I want to pay attention to this. You know, so you get them curious about it, so they would even consider signing up with you. And then it's the product market fit where they use it. And it's actually good. You know, there's, of course, it's, it's a mix of things. Like, it uh, needs to be great onboarding because we know the first 24 hours is magical for SaaS products. And obviously, they're all the customer success, the usefulness, the features, the usability. It's, it's, it's complicated. But so all those things need to be aligned first. Uh, but then you, you can buy your, buy your way into the top of the category. Most companies, of course, cannot play that game because they don't have that much money. And if you're a small, if, especially if you're a bootstrap startup, I think now it's, it's, it's especially hard. If somebody, let's say you start and you have a new idea and maybe it's differentiated enough and it's good and, and a venture-backed company starts at the same time, they can hire more developers, they can do more paid ads, they can hire uh, more expensive marketing leaders and so on and so forth. So I think it compounds. Uh, and it's it's unfair for sure. I hate it. I'm bootstrapped, but I can complain and gripe about it all I want. It's just but like you need to be rational about this. Like, yeah. And it's interesting. I think there's an interesting point about serving an underserved niche in a big market. So one of the most profound, not one of the most profound things in my life, but a very profound business lesson that I learned is that Take an example of Salesforce, right? They're over, I think their market cap is over 100 billion. Yeah, crazy town stuff, yeah. Yeah, absolutely insane, right? And buying Slack and all that. So it's, it's, a, it's a crazy story. Over 100 billion, if you take 1% of that market, you have a billion dollar company. So that means if you can identify 1% of this huge market that is underserved by a Salesforce and you bring in a competitor product, you can build a legit unicorn. For sure, exactly. Jason Lemkin had some interesting stats, like the biggest categories can produce multiple decacorns and then more than a 10 unicorns. Email marketing is one of those mega saturated categories because it's so old, right? Like Constant Contact and Aweber and all these tools that were around a long time ago. And recently, maybe two weeks ago, I learned about this Me Too email marketing company that I used to make fun of because their, their <laughs> messaging is literally email marketing for everyone. It's like, <laughs> no message. Can't, can't punch a man while he's down. But apparently, <laughs> they got acquired uh, for like some decent eight-figure sum, which is, of course, a very nice exit for the founder. So if it's like VC-backed and you need to make billions of dollars, it's a miserable outcome. But if you're just a solo founder and you're making a business, you're, you're, you've made it, man. You're... So even if you're like 36 in a big category, might be big enough, you know? So it really depends on what kind of an outcome you're after. Yeah, that hints at another big 
trend in the SaaS world, uh, or even just uh, any kind of uh, startup and software world, that we saw at G2, and that is kind of this this Cambrian, Cambrian explosion on the one side of, of lower barriers to entry, which you speak about a lot, uh, and it being easier to just get a company going, which means that there's also a lot of noise. And on the other hand, you see this consolidation where a few players grab the most market share and then buy all the smaller ones, right? Yeah. So at, at that point, it, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and we, you know, I think I think Atlassian is an, an example for that. They started uh, with a very specific focus, Jira, the cash cow, then extended that portfolio with adjacent products like Confluence, Bitbucket, right? They eventually bought Trello. That was one of the first uh, major acquisitions, and then now they they buy companies almost yearly, maybe you know, uh, semi annually. So I, I guess that as soon as you made it into the top three, then it's also a question of how do I expand into other categories from there and how do you think about that yeah so in a category if it's a mature category usually you take the the top two and they they control they get like 80 percent of the revenue in the category like a huge amount of uh like the old classic this was true in the 80s when ge jack welch said like if we can't be number one or two in a in a business we're, we're just gonna pull out and they did so I think there's, uh, if you have money and uh, you do these strategic acquisitions, like, so we know about these type of buyers and these kind of companies that we serve, you know, like uh, there's, there's strategic, strategic advantages of expanding your portfolio. Uh, there's probably some synergies in terms of how, how your uh, channel efficiencies, uh, economies of scale, things like that. Obviously I don't have, too much uh, detailed insight into this because I'm not them. So I'm just speculating here. Uh, what I do see here is also like there's a new crop of new startups that are coming built with the intention to be uh, uh, targets for strategic acquisition. So if you get if you do you know traditional revenue based acquisition like oh this company does I don't know five million in revenue and like the ARR multiple is like four to 12 times or whatever it is, depending on your metrics. Uh, so that's one thing, but like if, it, if you're a strategic acquisition target for Salesforce or one of these guys, you, you can command a much, much higher multiple where like you look at the revenue and the valuation and you're like, what the fuck is going on here? Uh, which also, again, adds to the noise. So it's like, we know a consolidation is happening. So let's build companies to be acquired well so what who would salesforce need hmm, let's build that one you know and then you, you create kind of an abm strategy of like okay which executives do we need to get in front of so they were aware that we exist and all that yeah i, I think that's very interesting i would argue however that you have done something similar before with cxl because you started very focused on conversion and then you branched out into other topics and now i think you know, personally, I think CXL is for me a source of super high quality content. So whether I read about abstract concepts or like like Bayesian thinking, or I read about, you know, the latest developments in SEO, you always hit a very, very high bar and you started out from conversion optimization. So how did, how did, you, how did you get there? Yeah, so like you start in a niche, you dominate a niche first, which is, I think is a very smart idea because you can create the surround sound effect. Like if somebody is interested in the topics in this specific niche, you can pretty easily be everywhere. 
you're speaking at every conference, you're on every podcast, you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So very fast, you can be highly visible, which is exactly what you want. So you want to build as a brand, you want to build a awareness that you exist. And two, you want to build brand salience and salience means that you're instantly thought of in uh, by category buyers in buying situations. However, some of those niches might be too small to go past a certain size. And so conversion optimization is one of those, let's call it niches that are actually pretty small. And this a uh, lot of behind the scenes discussions with other agencies, uh, with uh, tools and so on. And if you look, every tool that is reaching in A-B testing uh, a certain size, they're gonna start expanding out into either towards analytics, which is a massive category, uh, or customer experience. So the, uh, my thinking was the same, like our growth slowed in conversion optimization. And because there, there are not that many conversion optimization people, there are not very many companies that buy these services. So it's kind of like you kind of limited by how fast you can keep the growth going. And so we want, we started to expand out of it. Uh, into all kinds of data-driven stuff. Obviously, some things, some bets have not paid off. Uh, for instance, like trying to dabble in in the search, either paid or organic, um, and like people just already have their go-to sources for this kind of stuff. And it's like stra the strategy. The question is always, what game do we play, and how can we win it? And so I'm not really sure we can bring a better game in the SEO uh, PPC world right now. So it's, it comes back to this interesting phenomenon that I, that I noticed at, at multiple stages in my career when I worked for different companies, which is that kind of, uh, it's almost like a sinus curve, right? In the beginning, you're very focused on a, on a category or, an, or in a problem. You solve that really well, then you expand. And then the art is to bring it back into a certain focus, right? It's almost like you grow, you, you carve out the fat, you grow, you carve out the fat. And it's this rhythm that I've seen companies go through. Uh, and I think you notice that yourself with CXL. Exactly, because there's always a risk that, uh, you know, A, some bets don't pay off. And also you, you're spreading yourself too thin. In business, I think it's like all in or nothing. Like mediocre effort won't do anything. Like if I want to build my up my SEO rankings, I'm going to write these 300 word bullshit articles. It's better if I don't write them at all. Like it's just a waste of time, right? Like either you do the best in the world level or nothing. So same way, I think in competing, it's like if I want to outcompete, I don't know, SEO space content, I really need to like bring another level game. And then it's the question is like, do you have the time, the attention, the people, the resources to do this, pull this off? And the answer might be no, actually currently no. And maybe I don't care about it this much. So I'll rather not in, in average life, in like everyday life, I, <laughs> I often bring the same absolute mentality all in or nothing. doesn't fucking work for me in my regular <laughs> life. And like, imagine like exercise, either I go to the Olympic games or nothing, you know, doesn't work. So like some exercise is always better than none, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's juggling that absolutist mindset with the relatives, relativist mindset that I think is, makes many people so great. Um, but you, you do see it so often in business. I do, I do think it's very true. And you see other businesses doing the same thing, right? Uber started in a very specific 
markets and then slow like expanded very strategically airbnb same situation right and they they didn't grow too fast but they also didn't grow slowly so i think they had that same all-in mentality um but didn't open up into all the cities right they opened up in the biggest opportunities then went from branch to branch until they covered the whole market then went to the next continent and so on Exactly right. And I think uh, there's something to be said about a concept called transient advantages. So transient advantages, there's there's an excellent book out there on this topic. It's called The End of Competitive Advantage. Uh, So what a transient advantage is like, you know, we say that you can't compete on features, right, because they will copy you, and which is true. However, what Airbnb did and what uh, Uber did and many other companies that you come out with some features or you go to some markets or whatever it is, which and where you are new first and you can really, this, what you're doing is, is, is new and innovative. You can quickly grow by doing these new things, new ship by, with new features, for instance. And you know fully well that the competition is going to copy you on the comp. Like maybe you have one, maybe two years max of headway. And then they're all coming. Like Tesla is experiencing now, all the car manufacturers are coming, right? So every advantage, every new thing, any, every innovation that you ship, you know, okay, this is my transient advantage that I can piggyback off for the next year or two. And while I'm building this, or like cashing in, I'm exploiting this advantages that I've already shipped. I'm actually building up the next, next level competition. And so when the company, uh, competition is catching up, you're already building the next level thing. And then they catch up and you're building the next level thing. So it's like a forever continuous cycle here. I also say like to, to people and companies, like you can't compete on features while acknowledging that it, if you think of it as a transient advantage, it can be fucking huge. Yeah, that's uh, I've never heard that concept, but it blows my mind right now. Uh, and it's it's so true for so many companies. And the one company... You know, like even even Facebook or even Instagram, right? These are perfect examples of where even the category leader copies new features of an up and coming company like Snapchat or TikTok to fence in their growth and kind of suffocate them along the way, right? So I think that the same idea works in reverse, where while you try to build the next thing, you see what other things somebody builds who's not as big as you, and you like copy them. Same with Clubhouse, Twitter, yeah, Spaces, all this kind of stuff. More of it is- Never going to get their 100 million back, but. (laughs) And then the one company that sticks out to me that I'm I'm still baffled by is Google. Because nobody was able to copy Google to the same degree. Companies tried, right? Like obviously you have Bing, you have Ecosia, DuckDuckGo, all these different companies. Uh, And I have my theory of why nobody was able to, to, to really attack them at their core business. And yet at the same time, Google was never able to go beyond that, right? They were always stuck with search. Most of their revenue still comes from search ads. They tried all these different moonshots and things, and none of them really landed well. Yeah, so I guess it's YouTube a, it's a, has worked out real nicely, but there's some there's something that they cannot get beyond, right? They have all these opportunities, and then they get stuck, and I have no idea why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Google Docs and also Google Cloud are, of course, also things that have worked out really nicely for them. Or Google Workspace, I guess I should say. I think also like Intercom is a business where it's, uh, it's, it's a great product. I'm using it at two companies, but I'm also bitching about it all the time. <laughs> like I, a, I wish it, they would be better in some regards. And also I'm bitching about the price. 
it's it it seemed to me already maybe five years ago. Oh, it will be a no brainer for a lower cost intercom to come and just undercut them by price because after all, it's a bunch of features. Just fucking copy them. <laughs> and many have tried. And so there's user.com and there's uh, gist and then uh, there's a bunch of clones, but they all somehow are just well, objectively worse. <laughs> yeah. So I don't I don't really know. Like probably it's a hard pro- product to build. Uh, so on the surface, you're like, what well, is a chat and a database of people and they send messages. Like what's what's so special about it? But yeah, if you get to a certain size, the complexity, internal complexity, and then what all goes inside, it, it becomes kind of a moat. I was talking to PipeDrive folks, uh, PipeDrive and CRM. Uh, they they the recent unicorn were acquired. Um, so same thing where if if you're in early stages, you know you build a CRM, the basic core functionality. Actually, it doesn't take you a lot to build that. You know you, within one two years you, you could have a you know your own crm which is evident in the crm category uh there is a thousand of them right oh yeah but then as as your company grows and then now you have 100 developers and 200 developers and 500 developers and they're all cooking something up behind the scenes as a user as a me just casually observing was well, this is a crm and i had like i had a meeting with this guy and then that happened but it's actually far more is going on behind the scenes that we are also not able to clean, which explains some of these things. Absolutely. Um, we talked a bit about competing on feature. What do you think about competing on price? I think it's, it's a viable strategy if you actually have some sort, of a, some sort of a structural advantage. You can somehow do it cheaper than the competition. Because if you're competing on price and the competition can also do it at the same cost, well, then that's insanity. That's insanity. Uh, so, but like, let's look at some airlines, you know, like Southwest Airlines is actually a low cost carrier and one of the more profitable ones in the US, if not the most. The same thing in, in Europe with Ryanair. So I think if you go all in with it, and uh, so, you know, in Southwest, whoever has read books, the, the way the airplane makes multiple stops and, you know, like their, their whole model is built around that. And many try to replicate it. Famous business case studies around it, how low cost airlines were uh, built to compete with Southwest, but they didn't have the same type of underlying model. And so it failed because they didn't have the margins. So you need to have a structural advantage there. Uh, also like IKEA. IKEA A is it's the world's biggest furniture uh, maker, uh, seller, but also it has zero competition because there's nobody like IKEA. However, the way uh, the, the cost is, it's a very attractive point and it has a logistics advantage because I think the way they design their the tables and so on is that, okay, container can fit this many boxes. And so in order to put more boxes in a container when we ship them, they need to be these dimensions. So they work backwards from like shipping uh, to design a table, you know, things like that. So it's a like structural advantage. So if you can do that, do it. However, like in software, obviously this is different because now with freemium everywhere, uh, I don't know. Also with, with pricing, you're also, also, you know, you're signaling something. You know, like sometimes you don't want the cheap stuff. Yeah, and it's so true, right? Like if you look at, uh, if even Elon Musk competes on price, um, 
maybe with Tesla, but certainly with SpaceX, right? That's his whole play, making it making it cheaper by reusing. I mean, a the Tesla rockets. Model a Three is definitely like who else is shipping a car with those specs at that price? Like nobody. <laughs> and also, like now they're uh, <clears throat> I forgot what the next model is, but they're they're working on the twenty twenty thousand dollar car. What what's also interesting about Tesla is like okay, it used to be the category of one, okay, gasoline cars, and then there's Tesla, right? But now, of course, you can already see it in quarter one results of 2021, where all these other alternative options are uh, are, are coming and, and selling. And in China, which is the biggest EV market in the world, actually local brands outselling Tesla uh, by a lot. Of course, price is a, is a factor and all that stuff. But just goes to show that Tesla that has been competing on innovation has to start competing on brand, has to start competing on price and, and the design. Because also look at their cars. Tesla Model S, when it first came out, it was interesting. It was different. But now, like Model 3 and so on, it's kind of like, hmm, I'd like to see some more interesting designs, right? So consumer will have a lot of comparable options, like easy alternatives, because I think the battery range advantage is, is getting slimmer and slimmer and will eventually go away. Yes, and another perfect example for that is Apple, right? Apple obviously competed on innovation then competed on structure, right? Their logistics network, that's what Tim Cook built. That's what, what got him up to the CMO, CEO uh, position is because he was able to build one of the tightest logistic networks or supplier networks in the world, right? And now they see the same thing in China that when the price goes down for an S variant of a new iPhone, their sales go up. So they have that price elasticity that they might not have in other markets because in, I would, I would argue, Western uh, world markets, their market position is still kind of the luxury brand number one. Not the same thing in China necessarily. So it's it's exact same example as you outlined with Tesla. You know, I don't know if uh, Apple wants to grow its market share or not. Uh, in the US, I think I saw some figure that it's uh, the mar market share between, um, you know, of course, Android and Apple is like 90% Android because a lot of cheap phones also available. Uh, but Samsung and Apple were both like 35% similar size. Apple just has a higher repurchasing rate. So like it's, it's, it's the fan base. And also, of course, if Samsung people can switch easily to any Android manufacturer, if you're on Apple, who do you switch to if you're in the ecosystem, you know? So that's one of the modes, you know, there are like seven types of modes you can have. And one of the modes is the switching cost. And the switching cost can be financial. Like if you're on using Oracle, fucking cost you a lot of money to switch to any other thing. In <laughs> uh, Apple, it may be not about money, but it's it's the mental friction hassle of having to reorient to, you know, maybe Google ecosystem. And uh, there's also like the superficial vanity things, right? Uh, a key thing about what I've heard multiple people say is is the, the text messages. You can see which color is the text message. And so you judge people based on the color of your fucking SMS, you know? And it, it comes back a little bit to what we uh, opened with in the beginning, which is that there are companies that might be equal in features but compete on messaging and positioning. Other companies compete on innovation. And I think Apple has gone through that progression where obviously the iPhone was a revolution, right? Yep. Probably one of the best products in the history of humankind. Totally. But the, the progression of innovation since the first iPhone, I would say, has not been exponential. Yeah, and it's for speech parity. I mean, 
any flagship phone is as good. There's minimal. It's it's basically opinion based better. Like it's not objectively better anymore. You know. Yes, and yet still, uh, Apple is one of the most valuable companies in the world, because I would argue to your point, they really understand the messaging and positioning game. Right. They, I'm sure there's like the market events and all that kind of stuff is just amazing. And to be fair, there is a lot of great quality in the ecosystem. They built these modes over time, right? But they still position themselves as the number one player and the most innovative one, even though that might not be as true. Right. And it's, they're still, uh, it's funny because it's, a, it's, the, it's, it's the mainstream brand. Every idiot out there has an Apple phone, but somehow it's still the rebel. <laughs> <laughs> How? You know, it's like only the rebels drive a, a Chevy, you know, like nobody would buy that message or Ford, which are like mainstream, everybody, or Toyota, let's say, best-selling car. However, I mean, Apple is as mainstream as it gets, yet there's a cool factor to it. That's, uh, that's pure brand play. It's just nicely done. Yes, yes. And there's some some companies that just really figured this out. I would argue Harley-Davidson is another uh, example that, that really created an image in the heads of their audience. And so um, one question that, that I want to um, ask before we uh, start wrapping it up is how do you when, you, when you speak to your audience, when you do your research, what do you look for when trying to put your messaging and your narrative together? How do you, how do you approach the identification of these problems or of these axioms, of these truths that your audience holds? Because if you just do customer research and you you know you talk to users about the problems and jobs to be done and all that stuff, which is great, then you should do that. What you learn is category level insights. And so if you just follow what users tell you, oh, I have these problems, and sure it would be nice to have this problem solved. And if you just build that, you will be just like everybody else in the category. Because everybody is user focused and everybody is doing user interviews. And then, so they're solving the same problems. So the fam famous case study of Tesla was doing focus groups for their Model X and, and talking to moms. And basically, all the things that moms said apply equally to Honda, Toyota, Sienna, and, 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 and all the minivans out there. There was zero particular insights that, uh, that Tesla got from it. So, so that is a danger. So there's a magnetic pull to sameness, which is why most companies are the same, because there, there's a mantra like, don't focus on the competition, focus on your user, which is kind of true. Yes, sure, you need to solve their problems, but it's table stakes. However, if you're, need, if you're not number one or two in the category, you need to think about differentiation. And so uh, the question I would ask is, what is an idea that you can stand for, that nobody in your category is owning, but people care about. And it, it's, it's not easy and it's not obvious because it would have been done already. So it's not easy or it's not obvious. So I think it, it requires, in order to come up with this, you need a lot of actually deep experience in the category itself. It explains why most founders are in their 40s uh, because they've, been, they've seen shit, they've done shit, you know? They've made mistakes and they've learned that they have wisdom. Maybe it's just me because I'm 40. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so I think there, there's something to it. So you have some, uh, you, uh, you have some wisdom. Uh, and in order to come up with a unique positioning, if you're not doing like disruptive tech, which is another category of things, but if, you, if you're competing in a mature category and you want to come up with a story, 
uh, that taps into something that is out there and true, but is unique, then you need insight. And the way I operate and think about it is that, yes, I do the customer research, category level insights. I look at who is in my category and what are they competing and I'm actually analyzing. Like, what are they competing? And I don't care about everybody. So if my category is 100 players, I don't care about the bottom 75% because nobody knows they exist anyway. The book positioning from 1981 already says positioning happens inside the mind of the customer. It's not like a real thing, right? So if they've never heard of... So you can even copy somebody who's like, oh, that's, they're doing pretty cool stuff, but I can out-execute out and outspend these guys, you know? So yeah, so I think it's a lot of synthesis, lots of different feeds and creativity certainly helps. And it sure helps, like I, we talked about uh, IKEA and how it's different than the way it operates. Also like IKEA is different because it's not a traditional furniture maker because they don't make furniture that lasts forever. There's little support on the, on the store floor. Uh, they don't even sell furniture to sell parts. And if, if they would look at their user research, I'm sure they get complaints. Oh, not enough staff on the floor and I hate assembling this shit and my you know, plywood shit broke after two years. If they would just, oh yeah, let's fix those issues, they would lose their identity. So I thought I also think it it you need to come identity first. Like what the fuck am I about? What are the things I'm I'm gonna do and not do? What is my point of view for things? Which is something like also like I think Basecamp guys do. They have a point of view on like the the email uh to a uh, client, hey, or even Basecamp, which is like one of the feature uh, poorest uh, project management tools out there, but they have a particular point of view on how it should be. So you need to have that. And then if, if, if you're a spring chicken, it's hard to have a point of view because you don't know anything. Bam, mic drop. Pep, that was amazing. I think there's, I think it's a perfect way to, to, or perfect point to wrap it up. I think we came full circle. Mind blowing conversation. Before we wrap it up, uh, Pep, where can people find and follow you? Uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, um, posting basically daily or 10 times a day sometimes. So yeah, follow me there. Awesome. Follow Pep. I'll also link to all your accounts and all the things we mentioned in the show notes, of course. Um, and I want to extend a big, big thank you for coming on, spending the time and sharing your wisdom. My pleasure, man. Three, two, one.